Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank podcast. We love God, love people, and love our city. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org. Good morning, everybody. I'm so excited that you can be with us today. And I want to start off by thanking Pastor Sai for such an incredible message last week, the fact that we are made in God's image. And we are week two uh, in in the new series of uh, the gospel in full color. As I was preparing for, for today's uh, sermon, I was thinking back. I want you to think for a moment. 26 years ago, uh, this kind of topic spoken about at church would have been an illegal gathering. Uh, This would have been an illegal topic for us to talk about, and we would have been banned 26 years ago to even talk about the gospel in full color. And Simon probably would have had secret police at his house uh, talking about the topic he spoke about last week. And so just to think about the gravity of the the topic that we're engaging with over the next couple of weeks uh, reminds me of how far we've come. And so today I'm going to be talking about reconciliation. Easier said than done. Now I don't remember, I don't know if you've ever been to the airport and uh, stood at that viewing lounge and watched those airplanes on the runway or the tarmac. Uh, and even for me, when I've gotten close to an, um, an airplane uh, on the tarmac about to board it, and I look at this massive thing and I say to myself, how on earth is this massive piece of metal and plastic and, and machinery actually going to get off the ground? I'll never forget the first time I flew on an airplane. Uh, I was very nervous. I sat down. The, the, the cabin crew then gave us the safety message around putting your buckle on. A light will light up if the plane crashes. Um, uh, make sure that you look after yourself. Oxygen masks will fall down. And as they were finished that, we started taxiing backwards and, and we started heading towards the runway. And I, I remember flying for the first time, looking around me and noticing uh, some people were sleeping as we were about to take off. And I thought to myself, how on earth? earth can you be sleeping during this momentous occasion of of doing the impossible of human beings taking off solid ground into the air so i was very nervous my heart was beating fairly fast and as we got onto the runway i remember uh, the pilot uh, putting that acceleration down and i think it's pulling it back and you get pushed back into your seat and the plane starts running down the runway and you start feeling the plane starting to shake and rattle and it's like all of this crazy stuff happening you can literally feel gravity holding the plane down and the wind resisting this plane but at a particular moment you can feel that the plane leaves the ground and the wheels leave. And that is called the moment of lift. And at that moment, the impossible becomes possible. That you have this moment of lift and this massive plane that was never supposed to be in the air takes off. And if we're in a movie, I'd like you to press pause on that for a moment. Imagine those uh, Matrix kind of movies where everything is frozen in time. And I want us to think about what did it take for that plane to get to that position? Think about the, the, the ground crew that prepared the plane. Think about the, all the years and hours of the pilots that needed to get into training to get that plane to that point. The amount of money and fuel and then all the science that went into to get that point where the plane lifted off. And so the moment of lift is easier said than done. And so when we think about reconciliation today, I think it's a lot easier said than done. 
I've engaged with many people around this topic, and I know personally many people have left churches when we've started talking about reconciliation, particularly around racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, some of you even might be feeling nervous right now at home as you think about the church engaging in these conversations. And so I want to be that air crew with you today, and so I would encourage you to buckle in for the next 30 minutes that we're together. And as you buckle in, buckle into knowing that God is your safety, that God is your comfort this morning. And if things begin to feel rocky, hold on to him. Bambalela to Christ this morning as you feel some things happening with you, if that happens. And then um, if, if you're feeling like a, the conversation's getting too hot, know that the lights on the side of the aisle in the plane light up and you would normally exit the plane. But today I'm going to encourage you that if you get to that point in this conversation and you feel that you want to turn off your screen or just get out of this conversation. May I ask you to follow that light, but that light won't lead you to an exit of the plane, but that light will lead you to Jesus. That, that light will lead you to your Redeemer and that you would be completely safe as we have this conversation today. And so as we taxiing off and heading towards the runway, I want you to think about what has it been like for you on this journey of reconciliation? The 26 years that we've been in this new South Africa, for many of us, it might feel like this runway of getting to that point of reconciliation is very long. And so as we're entering onto that runway and we're about to put the throttle down and you get kicked back into your seat and the plane starts to take off, you'll start to sense a lot of rattling and shaking and you will feel the enemy telling you to resist this transformation, to resist this reconciliation that we're talking about. But I want to guarantee you that if we engage in this and we really put ourselves into it, we will begin to experience something fundamentally different about how we see each other and how we engage with the world. Because the reconciliation I want to talk about today is one between myself and God or ourselves and God and between one another this morning. And so I'm not following a typical sermon this morning, but I really want to share my story about how I became reconciled to God and how I became reconciled to people that were fundamentally different to me. And so if we take this airplane analogy, my airplane was a broken, rusty airplane with broken wings that wasn't going to achieve much. And so I want to begin to unpack that. So my story starts in 1980 uh, in the midst of apartheid. Uh, my family's tradition was in December we would go on holiday together to the Southern Cape. Now this was the time before armed responses and, uh, and alarms. So we took our TV and video machine to my great grandparents' house uh, the day before we went on holiday. And on our way home, we stopped at a shop to get putt course for the next day. And my dad went into the shop and he bought some Coke, but he dropped the bottle of Coke in the store. And he got into an argument with the shopkeeper. Um, long story short, he paid the shopkeeper for the mess and the Coke that he dropped and then got into to the car, went to another shop to buy some more Coke. On, on our way home, we passed that same shop again. And so my dad stopped, went into the store, gave through the bottle of Coke, but somehow this bottle of Coke landed on the other side of the counter and broke. The shopkeeper picked up those broken pieces and threw it at my dad. My dad then became angry, went around the counter to beat the guy up. And when my dad got around the counter, the guy pulled out a gun and shot my dad. What I remember next is seeing my father laying half on the road, half on the pavement, and what seemed like to me hundreds of people standing around the car. I was six years old, my brother was three, my mom was a young mom at that time, and I remember hearing the shopkeeper saying that if she goes into the shop, he'll shoot her too. 
The ambulance arrived, picked my dad up and took him to the hospital. We followed. Uh, the next thing I remember is my uncle coming out of the store, swearing at an ambulance driver and hitting a hospital sign. Um, then we were at my grandparents' house at about three in the morning and they made the announcement that my father had passed away. And I must be honest, as a six-year-old, I didn't know what that meant. In my mind, my dad had gone somewhere and that he was coming back. And it was only four years later that I really understand what it meant to have somebody die in your family. And so when I was 10 years old and my mom was mourning the death of my dad, I remember going to bed that night, realizing that my dad wasn't coming back. And it was the first time in my life I felt alone, that empty, hollow, deep feeling you have in your gut. And I remember that my dad wasn't coming back. And I desperately wanted my dad to come back. I needed him to come back to rescue me from the situation we had found ourselves in. Because my mom got remarried to my stepdad. And there was lots of drinking and fighting in my home. My stepdad was the kind of person that would say things like, if you don't call me dad, I won't feed you. And I can share with you multiple stories upon stories watching my mom being beaten by my stepdad. And then what would happen? My mom would get the courage to leave and we would go set up house somewhere else in Johannesburg. And month one would be okay. Month two, the money would start running out. And by month three, we would have no money at home. My brother would take our furniture and our clothes and sell it on the street. I would resort to prayer. And then my stepdad would find us and he would apologize profusely for what had happened. And then we would move back, um, maybe out of the hope that things would change. Maybe we were just in such a desperate situation, we would move back. And again, week one, things would be okay. Week two, the drinking would start. And by week three, my mom would be beaten up again. And then we would pack up and leave. And throughout my schooling career, that would be the narrative. Every three months to six months, moving, moving into a new home, going through that whole cycle. And it was only um, when, when I was in grade nine that my mom left my stepdad for the last time. But before that, I need to make one step back. Is that before my mom left my stepdad for the last time, I found God when I was in standard seven, which is what, grade nine, I think, right? Um, where I had entered into a relationship with God. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So that was my home life. I hated Thursdays. And the, the reason I hated Thursdays for the people that are on the uh, listening right now, if you remember the old South Africa, SABC1, there used to be uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. SABC1 was English early slot. And Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, early slot was Afrikaans. And on this Thursday, there wasn't anything really interesting on TV. So that was the one thing. But what was really scaring me was Friday, spelling test. 10 English words and 20 Afrikaans words. And I remember my Afrikaans teacher would give me a jack. That's a, uh, for the young people on the call. You don't get corporate punishment anymore. You had to hold your hands out. My teacher had a thin, long stick like this, and she would beat me for every Afrikaans word I would get wrong. And I would, I would get 18 words wrong every single Friday. And I wouldn't do much better in English. I'd get eight wrong in English. So I have a reading and writing disability. So that's why I hated Thursdays. And so I share that with you because when I arrived at high school, I remember they put up a person on the stage and that person looked like a Christmas tree. They had badges and braids and they shined as they walked down the road. Um, and, and they put that person on the stage and said, that's what you must achieve. And I looked at that and I said, academically, there's no ways I was going to achieve that. Uh, sportingly, there's definitely no ways I 
I was going to achieve that. Because whenever I kicked a soccer ball, it would never go there. It would always go in a different situation. And then culturally at school, there was no ways my family situation was going to drive me up and down. So I put those kind of things completely out of my mind. The other thing that happened at school was because of my tough uh, home life and <coughs> because of my academic uh, challenges, people always felt sorry for me. And so when I went into class, I would always be given special treatment. I think I was that person that they spoke about um, at school to say, oh, shame. He just failed by 1%. Let's just pass this poor, poor child over. And it was only when I met God in, in Standard 9, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time, that I really began to understand what true love is. Now, my encounter with God was very different to other people because most people remember the day, the time, the hour that that God encountered them. For me, it's been more of a journey. And so I know I was introduced to the person of Jesus uh, in, in, standard, in standard nine, grade, grade nine sometime, but it's been an ongoing journey for me for the rest of my life that I'm getting closer to my maker. But it made a fundamental shift in who I was and how I saw myself. And I'll, I'll come back to that um, in a moment. And so my, my mom le- left my stepdad for the last time and I went to stay with my uncle and my aunt for my last two years of high school. And that was the first time I didn't have to worry about food. It was the first time I didn't have to worry about fighting and I could really just focus on my schoolwork. And now with this new relationship with Christ and this new safe space that I had uh, with my uncle and my aunt, I could now begin to put myself into my schoolwork. And so when I left school, I had half colors. I became a prefect in the last two weeks of school. And so I had, I had, um, uh, I looked a little bit like that Christmas tree, but I didn't have the marks to go to university, nor did I have the money. And so in 19, when I finished school, I joined Bible school. And after Bible school, I joined an organization called Youth for Christ. And I spent 11 years working with Youth for Christ. And it's been absolutely an incredible experience working with Youth for Christ. And through Youth for Christ, I got an opportunity to travel the country. I got an opportunity to go overseas and speak about the South African story in Germany, England, and the States. And to preach the gospel in places where the gospel was never meant to be preached. And, and so I got to see the world. And I, when I was traveling for the first time, I'll never forget the conversation I had with my grade seven teacher. She said to me, she pulled me out of class and she said to me how can I send you to high school when you can't spell the word world I know she's probably passed on now because she was old back then but I'd love to find her and say ma'am you know what I still can't spell the word world but at least I've seen it and so I've traveled the world and and coming back from that experience I I working with Youth for Christ and doing incredible stuff I got an opportunity to get onto a program called the Clinton Democracy Fellowship Program and through that program, I got to meet President Clinton in an intimate setting in his presidential library. And after that, coming back to South Africa, I got to meet our deputy president and spoke to her about youth leadership development. And I got to share the stage with Ahmed Kathrada. And now I travel the world sharing my story and I I get to speak to C-suite executives about diversity and inclusion. And I get to serve in this incredible body. And I must be honest that this was never my trajectory. This was not what was planned for my life. If you had to asked me when I was back at school, would I be doing the things that I'm doing and holding the positions I'm holding? I would have told you not a chance. That was impossible. But you see, what's impossible for me is not impossible for God. And because of my relationship with God and that he was able to fill that emptiness that I had as a 10-year-old, I am now able to do the things that I'm able to do today. 
And so people often ask me, Quentin, what has it made you to be who you are today? And I can talk about a number of things, like I've talking about my relationship with God this morning. Um, I can talk about the importance of interdependence. I can talk about the importance of focusing on who I, uh, my strengths are. And, and there's a number of things that we can talk about. But for today's topic, I, I, I want to talk, one, about my faith. And secondly, the, the reason why I'm successful today, one of the reasons, is because of the color of my skin. You see, because if I was a different color, if I was black and I shared the, exactly the same story that I shared with you now, I probably would have ended up a street child. But because I was white and I grew up in a South Africa that had a particular context, I had a social system, an education system, a, 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 a health system that kept me off the street. And so if I don't acknowledge that I have benefited from the, the past, my story would be incomplete. So I don't know how many of you go to one of those meetings where you sit on a chair similar to this in a circle and you, you start by saying, hi, my name is Quentin and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober for the last half an hour that I've been on this call. That's not true, but that's some of those meetings that people go to. If I had to go to a meeting like that, I would say, hi, my name is Quentin and I'm a recovering racist. Not that I beat up a black person, not that I called a black person by derogatory term, because I benefited from the past and I continue to benefit from the system today solely based on the color of my skin. So if I, don't, if, if, if I didn't beat up black people or call black people by that, how did I benefit from the past? Well, let me talk about the home I grew up in. In my home, we had an African lady that worked in our home. She never called me by my first name. She called me Klein Boss because my father was the big boss. She wasn't allowed to use any of the cutlery in our home. And in our home, we had a special cup, plate, spoon, and bowl for the African woman that worked in our house under the sink. And if she was caught using our cutlery, she would get into a lot of trouble. She had a separate toilet that she had to use outside. And I remember one of the domestic workers that worked for us used the inside toilet and how much trouble she got into. Most of the domestic workers that worked in our homes lived in that back room in our house, just on a sidebar. Most of those back rooms haven't changed in the last 26 years, which is a sad reality for many people in our society. So this woman would live in that back room. She would have to ask my parents' permission to come, uh, leave the house, and if she wanted somebody to visit her, she would have to ask her permission. I remember one of the ladies that worked for us, or one of the women that worked for us, um, fell pregnant the same time my mom fell pregnant. My mom got maternity leave. Gladys had to work her maternity, literally had her son in that back room. And then Joshua stayed with us for a short time. And then when he was two or three, he disappeared. And I must be honest, as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old uh, young person living in apartheid, I never asked the question, where did Joshua go? It's only now when, that I'm on the other side of history do I realize that Joshua had to go live with Ugogo. And now that I'm a father and I have my own children, I wonder what it would be like if my employer told me that you need to leave your son or daughter behind when you come to work. And I often ask myself, who had the conversation? Did Gladys know instinctively that when she went on leave this year, she wouldn't come back with her son? Or did, was it my mom that had that conversation with her? I mean, those kind of conversations boggle the mind, right? And I want us to think about domestic workers for a moment. The amount of capacity of love that domestic workers have for other people's children. Most domestic workers can't spend time with their own children. They bring our children up and they love our children just as, as we do. And I wonder what kind of impact that has on, on, on the family system. The only black man I ever engaged with was the gardener. And I must be honest, 
to this day, I cannot remember any of the names of the gardeners that worked in our home. My job in our house was to give the gardener his water and his sandwich. And in our household, we called the gardener the boy. And this would be a 34-year-old man, and I would call him a boy. And everybody in society would call him a boy. And as I start to think about that, as a husband, as a father, if I was called a boy all day, and when I go home, how do I assert my manhood on my family, my fatherhood, my husbandhood on my family? I don't even know if those are real words. But how do I assert that on my family? And I think a lot of our toxic masculinity we have is because we, we treat grown people in our country like children. We still call gardeners boys. And we still, still call some women that work in our house girls. And I think we need to change that kind of language. But that's not what I came to talk to you about today. And so that was the only black person I ever engaged with. And the uh, first time I engaged with a black person my own age, I was 20. And it was on this Youth for Christ team in Michalisburg, where we were trained to be part of a, a team that would travel the country, sharing the good news of Jesus in schools, churches, communities. And I remember I had a share room with a guy by the name of Oscar. And I know that I thought this. I never verbalized this. I know I thought it. I said to myself, how am I going to, um, oh, how am I going to smell after a week of being with Oscar in the small room? Because in my household, we were told that black people stink. And so if I'm in the small room with Oscar, am I going to start smelling like him? I also thought to myself, what kind of um, intelligent conversation am, am I going to have with Oscar? Because again, in my household, we were told that black people are stupid. And the final thing I thought is, where am I going to keep my money? I can't just leave my money laying around in this room. Because in my household, again, we were told that black people um, cannot be trusted and they'll steal your money. And so when I met Oscar for the first time, when he walked around the corner, you actually smelt him before you saw him. Because in 1995, it was common to call young men that looked after themselves metrosexuals. I don't know if you remember uh, being called a metrosexual. So Oscar was a metrosexual. He bathed himself in perfume. His hair was magnificent. He, in fact, such a beautifully looking human being. And then he opened his mouth and he spoke English better than I could because he went to a Model C school. <coughs> and he probably thought, where am I going to keep my money from this guy from the East Rand? And so one person breaks every stereotype I had of black people in one meeting. In 1995 was the first time I ate at a table with black people. 1995 was the first time I used the same toilet as black people. 1995 was the first time I, I learned that black people had two names, an English name and an African name. And it's not a Christian name. Uh, the English name is given to people so that they can get a job because it's much easier to employ Peter than it is to employ Lhokhonolo. And that when I ask black people to change their name, shorten their name or change their name, I rob them of their identity because their African name has been given to them by Ugogo. It was an answer to prayer. It's a reminder of something that significantly happened in their, in their households. And so I've learned that to learn people's names is fundamentally important. And so I started learning all these things in 1995. But it's 1995. Mandela is the president of the country. There are no more stones to throw. We're in this new democracy. And so I set myself a challenge. And I said, in 1995, I would start building bridges where my family once started building walls. And that meant I needed to go to the township. And that meant that my friends needed to come to my house. And so when I mentioned black here forward, please remember, I'm talking about Indian colored and African black uh, in the terms that we were 
classified uh, during the apartheid regime. And so I remember bringing the first black person home, Buchle Glamini. I wondered which cup of coffee would they serve him? Would it be the special blacks only cup under the sink? Or would it be the normal cups in the cupboard? And I'm happy to say that my family served Buchle the normal cups. And it was fascinating to watch conversations between Seth Nyker, Buchle Glamini, um, uh, uh, Jerome Brankies, uh, having those kind of conversations with my family and how my family started investing in them. And we started learning about each other. And when my grandfather would pass away, Buchle and Seth would help me bury my grandfather. And when Buchle's father would die, we would go to Chlabisa together and I would help Buchle bury his father. And I started learning these incredible things and started going into the township and lived in the township for a fair amount of time and learned incredible things in the township. First of all, that there are cups, special cups for white people as well. It's in the cabinet and they only come out when Amalungu, Mulungus come or Umfundisis come. And so when we went into the township, Bukhle would have to say, oh, Gogo, no, he drinks from the same cups as us. Never ask Gogo what's in the pot. Uh, that's rude. Don't stir the pot with a knife, you'll get stomach cramps. And probably one of the best things I learned while living in the township is that if I'm sitting on the corner and a young woman walks past me and she looks at me, that's permission to walk with her to the corner of the street. And if I haven't made it by the corner of the street to convince her to have a date with me, I probably have to make the walk back by myself. And so there's a bunch of things that I learned. And I could spend the rest of our time just talking about what I learned while I was in the townships and living in Lanasia and Nootkesik and a number of townships across our country. And in many ways, that was my learning about other cultures. And then when I joined this Youth for Christ team to travel overseas, to tell the story of Jesus and what he did to me, but also to tell the South African story. I'll never forget what happened while we were traveling around as a team. We were in East Berlin once and we were packing our vehicle after a performance. And Seth is an Indian guy, got bumped by a German guy and was sworn at, called him a kanaki. It's the same as the K word or the N-word. Seth is not the kind of person you swear, swear at in, the, in, a, in a road, but Seth never responded. He just got into the car and the rest of the team heard that. We just got into the car and we drove off. I'm the only white South African on the team at that time. And so as we're driving off, I remember nobody said a word for the next two hours. When we arrived at our new venue, I remember seeing Buchle standing by himself in a river. He was standing knee height in the river. And when I got close to Buchle, I noticed that he was crying. Now, if you know anything about young Zulu men, it takes a lot for them to cry. So Bukhle standing in the river, I join him in the river, he's crying, I'm crying, we both, I have no idea why we're crying. And then he said these words 21 years ago that have never left me. He said to me, Quinton, why does that guy hate me? Because of the color of my skin. Why did God make me black? And I didn't know what to say to my friend. I didn't know how to respond to Bukhle in that moment. And all I could say to Bukhle at that time was, Bukhle, I am sorry. I'm sorry for what I represent. I'm sorry for what my family have done to your family. And I'm sorry that that guy hates you because of the color of your skin. And so in 1999, I started apologizing. And I know a lot of people might come up to me with my same complexion and say to me, hey, why must we apologize for something we didn't do? And plus, how long must I apologize for? And for me, the answer is easy. The answer is easy because the apology's got less to do with the other people than me. And so first of all, I want to be sincere in my apology. That if you're watching this now and you're black and nobody's ever apologized for the atrocities of the apartheid system, I sincerely want to apologize for what has happened to you and what I represent by just you looking at me, what this means for you today. 
And so I apologize for that. But if I'm really honest, that apology is your work. It's not mine. But what the apology has done for me has set me free. That I'm no longer guilty of what I feel. I no longer look at black people with pity. The same way the teachers looked at me when I was at school and say, oh, Shane, let's just give this person 1% and pass them over. And so now when I work with people like Pastor Lareko and Pastor Simon and, and Buchle and Seth, when I work with them, I see them as my equals. And I don't feel sorry for them. I don't have pity for them because they are my equals and I can hold them accountable. And I found that when I've asked for forgiveness, it has set me free. And so when you need to figure out for yourself what is your journey around that, this has been my journey. But I needed to move beyond just asking for forgiveness. There's one more thing that I want to talk about beyond forgiveness. And it became clear in a fantastic TED Talk I'd encourage you to watch. It's called Why Gender Equality is Important for Men. And in this TED Talk, the, the guy giving the talk is called Michael Kimball. And he talks about an African woman and a white woman having a conversation. And while they're having this conversation, the white woman says to the African woman, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it amazing that we are free and we're finally making headway? And the African woman says, not at all. I disagree with you completely. And the white woman says, what do you mean? And so the African woman said, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And the white woman says, when I look in the mirror, I see a woman. And the African woman said, that's the problem. You are blind to your privilege. Because when I look in the mirror, I see an African woman. And so when Michael Kimball was hearing this, he went, uh-oh. And so both the women turned around and looked at him and said, what do you mean, uh-oh? He said, oh, when I look in the mirror, I see a human being. Race, gender, and social economics are not important to me. And that's the day he became a middle-class white man. And why do I use those things specifically? Because as a man, let me talk to the men that are watching this for a moment. As men, when you get up in the morning and you get dressed to go to work, and this is pre-COVID times, but if you get dressed to go to work in the morning, how many of the men on this, on, this, on, on this connection watching this today think about what they get dressed in in terms of how, if they get dressed in a particular way, will somebody take sexual advantage of them? I guarantee you most men on the call or on this session would never think about that. When you as a man walk into the room and you're the only man or a minority in the room, how many of the men go, oh, I'm in the minority. What would a man say in these circumstances? I probably think that many, many of us as men don't think about that. Why? Because each of us as men are blind to the privilege that we have. And so it's only in recent years that white people have become aware of their whiteness and their white skin. But up until then, as a white person, you never think about what you need to say or how you show up because our white skin has given us privilege and we've been blind to the privilege that we've been given. And we take a whole bunch of things for granted around that. And so we're all blind to the privileges we have. And so it becomes important. So what do we need to do now if we're at this place? And I would say this, that if you benefited from the past or if you benefit from a system, it is imperative on you to break the system you benefit from. That means that all of us have privilege. In this kind of church that we're in, I mentioned it the other day in another forum to say that if, you, if you're able to have a warm shower today, you are privileged and you need to figure out how do you break the system that you benefit from. And so I need to learn how to walk in solidarity with people that don't have the same privilege as me. And so that has been my journey around this. And so as we begin to land the plane, uh, figuratively speaking, in terms of how we started today, there is a cost to reconciliation. And it's much easier said than done. 
So if I think about my own life and my reconciliation with Christ, there was a cost. And often in the church, we, 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 we forget to talk about this cost because we say salvation is free, which is absolutely true. But my salvation is free only because somebody else died on my behalf. And so there is a cost to reconciling me to God. And that is the death of my Lord and Savior. And because he was willing to pay the price, I can step into that relationship with Christ today. And so my first challenge to you today is if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if you could relate to my story as a 10-year-old, sitting with that empty, hollow feeling inside yourself that feels so empty, this morning I want to invite you to say, accept Jesus into your life and he will begin to fill that empty hole in your stomach or in your hole, in your soul, because only Christ can fill that. And so I'd encourage you to step up, get onto the runway and say, Christ, I'm getting into this. I want to accept you as my Lord and Savior. And if you're on that journey and you've accepted the Lord and Savior, uh, but you feel that this runway is long, I want to encourage you this morning to continue to press into your relationship with Christ. Get to that point where the plane leaves the ground and that complete journey has happened. And if that is you, I encourage you this morning to contact the number at the bottom of the screen. And somebody from our church will be willing to walk you through that process of making some kind of reconciliation between you and God. And we cannot reconcile with one another, black and white, before we make that step, before we are reconciled to our maker. And so that is the first step. The second challenge that I want to give everybody today is that reconciliation needs to cost us something. It is one thing just to apologize, but it's a different thing to live differently. And so as a church, we are so blessed to be in the church that we're in. A couple of months ago, I was doing a, a, a multi-city church engagement, and there were a number of churches that we were talking to. And I was surprised that people were saying, I go to a black church, and I go to a colored church, and, and I go to a white church. And then they asked me, what kind of church do you go to? And I said, I go to a I go to a church and I see all different kinds of people. I don't go to a white church. I go to a black church. I go to a church that represents heaven in the future. And so I'm really excited about the body that we find ourselves in. But as a body, we need to move beyond just the Sunday expression of worship. We need to move beyond just worshiping together. But we need to start living life together. And that the same message that we have on Sundays, we need to take to our workplaces. And we need to become the agents of change in those places. And we need to do what we need to do in those places. And so in Micah 6, the people of Israel uh, were confronted with their sin. And they were, they were told that God was going to bring judgment on them. And so their response to God was like, so what do you want from us, God? Do you want us to sacrifice our children? Uh, do you want us to, to give a thousand cattle? What, what do you want us to do so that we don't have to face this judgment? And so maybe that's your question to me today. So what is that cost? Do I, do I need to sell my house and sell my cars? Sounds like the rich ruler having the conversation with Jesus, doesn't it? What do you want me to do? And in Micah 6, it's very clear what we should do and how we should live, that we should love, live justly. And so when we make decisions about the houses we buy, uh, the cars, the clothes, the people we engage with, are we doing that justly? Are we thinking with justice when we're engaging with people? The second part of that scripture says we need to love mercy. And when we think about loving mercy, it means that I need to ask for forgiveness, but we also need to forgive. And so I needed to forgive my stepfather. I needed to forgive the man that shot my father. And so I understand sometimes that forgiveness is really difficult. And so I have learned 
needed to forgive and I've also learned the need to forgive. And so we need to love mercy. And when we engage with each other, remember to see the best in each other. And the final thing that it says is that we need to walk humbly before our God. Just as Jesus walked humbly amongst ourselves, that when he came onto earth, he didn't come with power and with, with being God. He came as a man and he humbled himself to walk with us. And so when we live life with one another, can we walk humbly with each other? That we put our privileges aside and begin to see each other, as Simon said last week, that we are made in God's image. And when we begin to engage with each other like that, it becomes really something powerful. And so yes, Diversity, inclusion, or this reconciliation is a tough topic, and it shouldn't be an easy conversation. But when we have God with us, it becomes a lot easier, and the impossible becomes possible. And so maybe let me end with one of my favorite stories that, that talk about this for me. And uh, it's um, a story about World War II. Uh, the Germans are pushing the Allies up north. And I'm wondering if I've shared the story before. If I have, pretend you haven't heard it before. The Germans are pushing the Allies and they land up in North Italy on a farm. And the sun is busy setting. And so they dig themselves in, wait for the sun to pop up the next morning to start shooting each other. And as the sun pops over the horizon, one of the soldiers puts his head out of the dig out. And to his amazement, he sees a farmer plowing the field knowing very well that these two armies are about to start shooting each other. And so the soldier gets to speak to the, the farmer and said, like, what were you doing? Why were you plowing the field when you knew that we were going to start shooting each other? And the, the response of the farmer was amazing. He said, I know the war will be over and soon um, I will, the Italy will need to eat. And if I don't plant my seeds now, there won't be a crop. And that is the audacity of hope, that in the midst of this war, that farmer knew it was important to plant his seeds so that Italy could eat. And so I want to encourage you today, in the midst of the Black Lives Movement and what's happening around the world that have heightened the tensions between black and white, colored Indian and people that look different from us, we need to still continue to plant the seeds of hope. You see, because there's that amazing African proverb that says, we will reap the benefit. Somebody else will sit in the shadow of a tree and reap the benefit of the, sh the shade of that tree because somebody else had the courage to plant those seeds. So continue to plant those seeds uh, today around reconciliation. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we had today to come together, worship together, even though we're not in person, but that we were able to come together as one body, as one body in Christ. And that we can celebrate what you have done for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the insight to be reconcilers to one another, Lord Father God. And that if somebody has made the decision today to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that this journey may be an amazing journey. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed my time and I'm looking forward to being back with you face to face in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God of reconciliation. Thank you that you're a good, good Father who doesn't want us to remain the same. Thank you, Lord, for moments like this where we can look deep into our hearts and see what is not right and what needs to be reconciled. I pray, Lord, that we, we are people who live from a place of repentance, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you're a wonderful and worthy Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I'm so grateful for that word from Pastor Quentin. He did such a wonderful job just sharing his story, but also reminding us 
that we are people who need to keep on reconciling, not just to our Father God in heaven, but also to our fellow man. So as we go about this week, find those moments of reconciliation. And I hope you have a wonderful week ahead.